Well, good evening, church. My name is James, one of the pastors here, and though it does feel like winter, it is a new day, and we've got a new series tonight, and I'm looking forward to it. We're looking at the Gospel of Matthew, which is all about the coming of the King. A couple of weeks ago, in a sermon, I shared about how the remarkable moment where I, uh, a number of years ago, met Her Majesty the Queen, and uh, showed a photo and all that. And uh, what I haven't told is a church is the story, the time that I met King Charles. Now, there's a reason why I haven't told the story. I've never actually met him. There's no story, right? And what, at the moment, I feel is this sort of sense of working out who is King Charles? What's he like? You know, the Republicans are wanting to be a real dud, and the pro-monarchy is wanting to be really successful, but there's a sense of what is he like? What's he going to be like? And I, like billions of others, have never met him. And when it comes to Jesus Christ, the Gospel of Matthew was written to the billions of people who'd never met face-to-face King Jesus. Never had a conversation with him. Never saw him with their own eyes. It's written to people to get to know the King, the King, Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we here at church are going to focus just on chapters 8 to 12 of Matthew's Gospel. You might be scratching your head thinking, what about the first seven chapters? We actually did that six years ago, right? (laughs) We don't like to rush things here. Who was here six years ago, right? Who remembers it? Okay, a few of you. Okay, that's good. At this rate, we're going to do 13 onwards in about 2032, so look forward to that, but it'll be good. This section, 8 to 12, is what people call the Little Commission. There's a great commission, but there's, in later on in Matthew 28, but there's this Little Commission, and it is jam-packed full of miracles and demon exorcisms, and as Jesus travels around and sends out the 12 to tell people of the arrival of the king. And we've titled this series, The Voice of the King. In the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear and see Jesus speak his powerful voice, a voice like no other, and see how others respond. But not only that, we're going to see how you respond to the voice of the King. Whether you're here as a skeptic or a seeker, whether you were born a grand Christian, and this is the hundredth time you've read Matthew's Gospel, You know, all today, at different services that have gone before you, I've actually seen and talked to people who this very day has opened up Matthew chapter 8, that they listen to the voice of the king, have been profoundly impacted. And so that is our expectation. But more than that, the Gospel of Matthew, unlike Mark or John Luke, has more references to the Old Testament than any other, to show that the voice of the king has been speaking all throughout Old Testament history, and it's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hopefully you have one of these on your seat. This is for you to have, to take notes, to use for Connect Group, uh, to uh, allow you to do daily Bible readings. It is your What's Happening in the Life of Our Church book. Keep it, bring it, and now we're going to open up God's Word and hear him speak to us in Isaiah and then in Matthew chapter 8, as that Isaiah passage is fulfilled in part. Let's open our Bibles. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning from verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering 
and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I'd love you to turn to page 833 of our church Bibles for our second reading tonight, which is Matthew 8, 1 to 22. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralysed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go. And he goes, and this one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the Lord came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said, Lord, first just let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I wonder when the last time you were shocked was, you know, sort of the jaw-dropping moment. Big or small? <gasps> I had a little one this week. Found out Tom Cruise is 60 years old, and he looks like that at 60. All of a sudden, Top Gun Maverick is a very depressing film. It's unfair. Anyway, there's all sorts of things that shock us, and if you haven't been shocked in a while, 
Chances are, if you're in chapter 8 of Matthew's Gospel, you might be. It is a chapter full of shocks. It is a shocking chapter. And what I simply want to do is just walk through this passage and just highlight the shocks that are peppered throughout. Sound good? Let's start. Verse 2. Let's start with the social outcast. Verse 2, chapter 8. A man with leprosy. Now, just a side point. Leprosy was a terrible skin disease, a physical disease that attacks the nerve cells that you can't feel any pain, right? That's what this man had. A man with leprosy came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Now, from the get-go, talking about shocks, the first shock here is what? The miracle, right? Miracles are shocking. Now, for a miracle to be shocking, it needs to be rare, doesn't it? I mean, when you cut your finger and it heals a couple of days later, you don't say, oh, it's a miracle, right? No, no, we expect that. But miracles are unexpected. Not humanly possible, not natural. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, you know what, James, look, I'm a man, I'm a woman of science, right? I can't believe in miracles. I'm not a child. You know, science is about natural, material, repeated events. But when you're engaging with Jesus, all of a sudden you'll see he's not just natural, he's someone who's supernatural. He's not just human, but he's doing what no human can do, only what God can do. And there is a shocking element to this. But you know what's the true shock when it comes to this leper? It's not that he was healed. It's the way Jesus heals him. Because what you're going to say is leprosy in this day, that if you had leprosy, you're required to be distanced, truly socially distanced from everyone else. Because you were unclean in society. So much so that if you were going near someone or someone was coming near you who didn't have leprosy, you would say, unclean, unclean, so they wouldn't come near you. And yet, how does Jesus heal him? He touches him. He touches him. Now, we've just, you know, coming out of two years of COVID where we've been told social distance, do not touch, do not touch, do not engage. You know, and then monkeypox come along and we, you know, do not touch... If I had COVID or monkeypox right now, you wouldn't go anywhere near me. And yet here is Jesus with this man, with his leprosy from head to toe, and yet Jesus embraces him. Why? Because in the next moment with the centurion, he knows that Jesus could say it with a word and he'd be healed. Why does Jesus touch him? Because Jesus not only wants to heal this man, but he wants to know that his healer loved him. He may be an outcast to everyone else, but Jesus embraces him. This is a foretaste of who Jesus is, foretaste of the gospel, that God touches us. You and I may not have leprosy, but we are riddled with sin. All of us have done shameful things that we deeply regret and are embarrassed by. And yet God, who is perfect and holy and pure on that cross, touches us, takes the dirt and shame from you onto him. He becomes unclean and you become clean. Jesus has always been a hands-on healer.
this leper knew he had nowhere else to go. He was ready, as he stood before Jesus, to contaminate the king. And Jesus let him. The question is, are you willing to contaminate the king with your sin? Because the issue is not him, but it is you and your willingness to go to him. So that's the first thing. But there's a second encounter, isn't there? This time with a centurion, a commander of Roman soldiers. Have a look, verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. What was the help? His servant was paralysed, whether through an accident, we don't know, but he was unable to work. And there's an urgency in his voice. And Jesus asked him, well, shall I come and heal him? But the centurion says, no, no, no. Verse 8, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man of under authority with soldiers under me. I do this one goes and he goes. I do this one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Just like the soldiers take direct orders and obey from him, he knows that diseases take direct orders from Jesus. They respond to his word always, even from a distance. Now, I've been thinking about the power of my words this week, or the lack of, I should say. I mean, there's my dog, Billy, right? What do I say? Sit, sit, sit. Eventually he does, but it's always with a treat in hand, right? What do I say to my kids, my young kids? You know, put your shoes on, put your shoes on, put your shoes on. Put your sh-. And the 17th time, they've managed to find a sock, right? But my words are so weak. I can get so little done. I think I have powerful words. I don't. But Jesus can say to paralysis, gone, and it goes. He can say to cancer cells, vanish, and they vanish. He can say to fevers, leave, and they leave. What kind of a power, what kind of authority does Jesus' voice have that we do not? Because, friends, what's happening here is creation, as broken as it is, is simply listening to its master, its creator. The voice of the king is powerful. It was then and it is now. See, when the worst happens to you or those that you love, whether through diagnosis, whether through an accident, we do what the centurion does and go to the most powerful one that we know, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, a couple of years I was involved in the healing service in, uh, in the cathedral. And one of the first people I met was a guy, let's call him Akish, because I don't have permission to tell his name. But when I met Akish, one of the first things he said to me was, he should be dead. He should be dead. He had a brain tumour that was massive. In his, and he only had days to live. And yet, miraculously, he prayed to God, he healed him. Gone. We pray boldly like the centurion because we know we don't have the power, but Jesus does. We pray boldly to Jesus, the healer, who can, every diagnosis gone. That's why this November, coming in our central prayer, we're having a healing service as part of that. We're praying expectantly for 
us or those that we love who are going through immense suffering, whether physical, emotional pain, whatever it is, that Jesus would heal, that his voice would ring true into the pain that you or those you love are experiencing, and that he would heal again. But you know, the shock here is actually not that Jesus healed the paralyzed man. The shock is actually that Jesus is shocked. You see that? Verse 10. Truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith, says Jesus. Now, you've got to realize this centurion is a Gentile. He's not Jewish. He's not part of God's people. And Gentiles were those who oppose God. And yet he is here, a Gentile, having great faith in the Lord Jesus. And then Jesus says something even more shocking. He says, him, this Gentile, he will take his place at the feast. He'll be in heaven as opposed to the subjects of the kingdom, a.k.a. the Israelites. Now, do you think the Israelites would have been shocked by that? You bet. I mean, they presume their Jewishness guaranteed them entrance into heaven. They're thinking, they're presuming, well, do you know where I'm from? Do you know where my parents are? Do you know what I've done? It's like about a year ago, I was driving to church via an Uber. I was talking to the Uber driver about religion and God, and he said, well, as long as you do right, think right, you'll be fine. I said, but how do you know you've done enough? And then he got out his phone and pointed to his five-star Uber rating driver <laughs> and said, that's how. I was like, wow. I mean, this guy's confident that his customer approval rating will get him into heaven. Now, we might not point to five stars, but we all point to things that we cling on to, think, this will get me in. But it won't. What wows God does not wow us. He is wowed by a confidence, not in self, but a confidence in him. It's called faith. But Jesus is not done yet. Verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. She got up and began to wait on him. In a true story, one of my good friends in school became a Christian because of those verses. And you look and think, really? I mean, that ain't John 3.16 at all, right? She grew up in a Catholic upbringing and... Uh, she was always told, you know, Peter's the first pope from the Roman Catholic Church, and the pope has to be single, not married. And then she read these verses, Peter's mother-in-law. Well, Peter has a mother-in-law. What does that mean? He has a wife. And it began her journey of seeing the difference between Roman Catholic Church and what the Bible teaches. And then she read the next verse, where Jesus touched this woman with a fever and got up that she didn't do anything to deserve God's love and compassion. She was sick with sin, and yet Jesus walked towards her, and she understood grace for the first time, and it changed her life. She became a born-again Christian, realizing there was nothing that she could do but everything that God has done for her. She met the king through the pages of Matthew's gospel, and here we meet the king who says, I'm willing to be contaminated with your sin, and you would be clean who says, whose voice is so powerful that he can say to disease, go, and it goes, who's wowed not by what we do, but by faith in him, who shows undeserved love in abundance. 
And friends, these three encounters with very different people are so important to prepare you for when you hear shocking news. There are days coming that are truly going to rattle you. A day like when this guy noticed the skin disease growing on his hand and realised this is leprosy. Days like when Peter noticed his mother-in-law's temperature rising. Days like when the centurion hears that his servant is no longer able to walk. Days like that that really rattle you, that shock you. Two years ago, I put irrigation into my front and back garden to water the plants. And as soon as I did that, it was declared La Nina. <laughs> I know it's not a waste of all the time and effort I put in. You know why I know? Even as I watch the rain pour down and pour down and pour down, I know it's not a waste because drought is coming. Drought is coming. And friends, we need to read this passage, even if you're here and you're fit and healthy, and I'm caring about you need to prepare because drought is coming in your life. Suffering is coming one way or the other. And verse 2 is one way to prepare, to meditate, to chew on, to see how to respond. Verse 2, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. That is a beautiful prayer to pray to the Lord Jesus. Notice he doesn't say, well, if you're able to, God. No, no, no. He doesn't question God's power. He, like the student tune, knows that for sure. But what he doesn't know is Jesus' will. He doesn't know whether Jesus will heal him then and there. And it's very important to know the difference. There is a difference between Jesus' sovereign power and Jesus' sovereign will. The leper doesn't presume he knows Jesus' will. He says, if you're willing. And he stands boldly before Jesus asking, trusting in God's power and his wisdom. And we are to do likewise, to come to the Lord Jesus courageously as he did, but trusting that God knows best according to his will, his time, not our own. Now you might be thinking, yeah, but James... Every single person in this chapter was healed. Everyone. And you might be sitting there thinking, but I have not been. You may have been praying for years after years after years. You may have been a healing service, gone to healers. You have confessed sin, and it is not your lack of faith, even though some Christians have told you it is, and that was real salt to the wound. That is why, friends, if that is you, that is why verse 17 is so important. What does it say? This was to fulfill, right? All this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and borne our diseases. That Jesus came not primarily as a healer. Because the problem, if he just did that, it would have a positive effect for those, but it would be very short-lived. Because every one of these people in this chapter who experienced a miracle will later in their life need another one. Because we live in a broken world. I mean, Akish, who I mentioned before, with that brain tumour, he experienced a miracle. But a year or two later, he got this horrible skin disease, which caused him immense pain and agony. He's not healed of that. If you experience a miracle, praise God, but you will always need another one because this world is broken, our bodies are broken. 
Jesus came to deal not just with sickness, but he went deeper. He went to the root of the problem, and that was sin. Because according to Genesis, when sin entered the world, suffering followed. So in order to remove suffering, Jesus had to go for sin. And that is why he took up an infirmity. He's bore out diseases. He was the suffering servant Isaiah predicted. You know when people who, who are really sick, they say, oh, I'd never wish this on my worst enemies. You know you say that? You might have said that. We were to Jesus' enemies. And yet he took it up on himself. He took our sin and shame and disease on himself and he died on that cross. But then he rose again, conquering death and sickness had an end date. That whatever your present reality is, friends, and some of you, you are dealing with a whole bunch of horrible things mentally and physically. It may be your present reality, but it is not your long-term one. Does Jesus want to heal you? You bet. He died and rose again to make that sure. Does he want to heal you in this lifetime? It's possible he will, but it is guaranteed in the next. Their story of the leper, the centurion servant, the mother-in-law, it may be different to your story. May not heal you right now, but their story is a taste of what will happen to you one day when you meet Jesus face to face. It is a preview, a teaser, a taster of your eternal future when you experience that final and complete healing when you meet Jesus and he gives you a new resurrected body. When the days of shocking diagnosis are gone, miracles no longer needed, and sickness ends. But Jesus is not done. There's one more last shock to come. And to be honest, if, if I'm honest, I didn't really want to talk about it. I was very much happy with ending the sermon there and not looking at verses 18 to 22 for reasons that will become apparent. I didn't want to just sort of, you know, didn't go with the big idea, so I just want to end it up there. But I don't want my voice, I want the voice of the king. And what he's about to say is probably the most shocking of all. Have a look. Verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, they just stop there. It makes sense as a crowd, right? If people are seeing Jesus heal after heal, 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 wouldn't you want to be near Jesus? I mean, if your parents turned for the worse, if your brother or sister in tragic accident, wouldn't you want Jesus nearby? Could I quickly heal this guy? Quickly heal. So there's a crowd. But notice what happens. Jesus gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Almost as a test. Do you want me or do you just want my miracles? Are you chasing me to get something from me or are you following me for me? Because then two potential disciples pipe up. One, very eager, over-eager. Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. The other... Conflicting priorities. Lord, first let me go bury, go and bury my father. Now, just on that one, it may seem a bit heartless of Jesus. You think, oh, come on, can you just spare an hour to go to the funeral? Right? But what commentators say is they presume his dad's actually alive. And what he's saying there is someday after my father has died, the organized inheritance, then I'll follow you. He's sort of postponing his discipleship. 
But Jesus' response is very clear. Following me will be costly. Because if you follow me, I have no place to lay my head. It means giving up earthly comforts and security. Following me, Jesus is saying, always means leaving something or someone. You cannot continue your life and simply add Jesus in as part of your routine. It doesn't work like that. So Jesus is asking the crowd, are you chasing me because you want something from me or are you following me for me? Because the crowd may be chasing them for all sorts of reasons. You can follow Jesus for all sorts of wrong reasons. They're there because they want the comfort, the ease. They want the healer. They want to get something from God because it's going to benefit them. But a true disciple, and Jesus is sifting out who the true disciples follow Jesus because they want him, even though it is going to be costly, even though there's sacrifices, even though it is not going to be easy. Because all they have, all they need is the Lord Jesus. Let me give you an example. When I first met my now wife, Charlie, you know, I noticed that she was godly, she was kind, and I also noticed she owned a car, and I did not. I was 20 years old at the time, and I did not own a car. Now, if I was to tell you, if you would ask me, why did you marry Charlie? And I said, so I'd get a car. <laughs> you were pretty much safe to say that is not a healthy relationship, right? Why not marry because of her? And what Jesus is, I mean, we always say, you know, Christianity is about a relationship. It's about a relationship. And it is, and Jesus wants a healthy one. One that we want to be in relationship with him. Where he is our first love, our highest priority. You know, some people can be around Jesus for all sorts of reasons that seem good. You know, maybe it's community. I want to be around because, good. you know, I feel connected. Some people, because of experience, sort of feel a peace and a calmness. Others are convenience. Well, I've always grown up a Christian home. It sort of makes sense with the rhythm of my week. We're sort of just chasing Jesus to get things out of him. But a disciple, a true disciple, follows Jesus. That even if nothing else happens, all I have is him and that is enough. Now, how do, how do you tell? How can you work out where you are? Are you part of the crowd or are you a disciple? The things is how the sort of the test is how do we respond when things get hard? When we hear the voice of the king say to us, there's going to be costs, you're going to have to give up things. Because following me, Jesus says, will involve costs. And this is not just for ministers or those who are risk takers amongst us, this is for everyone. As Jesus is saying, there will be radical sacrifices when it comes to your job, your finances your personal ambition, your preferences, your reputation. It may involve disappointing your parents or your adult children because your loyalty is to God's word and not theirs. It may mean experience rejection from your friends or work colleagues because your allegiance ultimately is to God. It may give up entering certain romantic relationships which your heart longs for, but your heart is aligned to God and his word. And when those romantic relationships don't match God's word, you go with the heart of God and not your own. It may mean surrendering middle-class comforts and securities which everyone just clings onto and thinks is normal, but you sit loosely. Whatever it is, we know this, following Jesus ain't no hobby. The voice of the king is calling ultimate allegiance to him and him alone. 
Now, some of you may be surprised to hear this. You know, we love the idea of Jesus making a sacrifice to us, but the idea of I have to sacrifice for him? Doesn't Jesus want me to be true to myself? No, that ain't Christianity. He died on a cross because you were true to yourself. It's called sin. He wants you to be true to him. I don't know if you were shocked by what happened with Andrew Thorburn uh, this week and uh, the Essendon Bombers, who was a CEO for about 24 hours. He had his dream job for 24 hours, but because he was actively involved in his local church and had a normal Christian faith, he stood down or let go. He walked away. And the reports kept saying one after the other, you can't be part of a biblical church and be CEO of Essendon. Now, it sort of was a shock. And talking to a number of people, there was a shock this week, right? Because that this could happen. I mean, this is not like an Israel Falau kind of moment, which you can easily sort of dismiss. This is a guy who's part of a normal church down in Melbourne, like be part of this church, right? There was a lot of shock. And then I watched the project. They were shocked, right? Peter Helly and Hamish McDonald's, they were shocked that this had happened, right? And if they're shocked, it's pretty shocking, right? And there's more we can say about this. I do just want to say, I do think it is a wake-up call, particularly for us Christians, the way things are going, but not just for us, for the refugee, for the migrant, or the Muslim, the, the Hindu who comes to this country from other countries where there ain't no freedoms. We want them to experience freedom that you and I do, right? We want to cherish that. That is a good thing. So we need to have this conversation. But what should not be shocking at the end of the day is actually what Andrew experienced. Because if we read what Jesus says... Following him, there will be costs, even when it comes to your dream jobs. Now, why? Why do this? Why have ultimate allegiance to God? For one reason. He has ultimately aligned himself with you, left heaven, took on flesh, died on the cross, took your sin on himself so you would be free. He has ultimately aligned himself with you, united himself to you, that you would be his forever. And so all of a sudden, we become people who are about short-term pain, long-term gain. And we follow Jesus. You know, he didn't just stay dead, did he? He rose again in victory. And so we follow that pattern to experience life, friends, we need to experience death first. Paradise awaits, but there's persecution now. Reward is coming, but there are costs now. Rest is on the horizon, but there's rejection to be had. Comfort is our future, but sacrifices are the norm for now. And whatever you've been asked to leave behind, even the most precious of relationships will pale into significance when you see the Lord Jesus, the King, face to face. The voice of the King is calling. And you'll notice, friends, in this chapter, every disease obeys the voice of the King. The question is, will his disciples do likewise? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a most wonderful and merciful saviour. 
We praise you for everything that you are, that you've done, and that you continue to do, that we are completely secured in our salvation because of you. We thank you that we matter to you. All of us matter, spirit, soul, and body. And we know, Lord, that we need a cleansing, a healing, a life-giving power because many of us are broken. Oh, we look forward to that day, Lord, that day when you return and everything will be completely healed, where there will be no more cancer or heart disease, tumours or terrors, no asthma or Alzheimer's, no addictions or obsession, no, no mental illness, Lord. Gone. We know that day will come and we ask for it to experience some of that now. We ask, I ask for those here who are experiencing all sorts of horrible things or that you would free them from, that you would heal them, knowing that you can do so with but a word. We do also pray that you would heal our unbelief. Free us to know that all we really need in life is you, Lord Jesus. Renew our first love for you, knowing that there'll be costs, knowing that there'll be sacrifice to come. But we ask that your, your Holy Spirit would open our hearts to see that it is worth it. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are writing stories in our lives that are greater than we can see or understand. So we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus.